0: Tēnā Koto, no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tain. With vaccinations beginning in New Zealand, the National Party is this morning calling for a major change to managed isolation, moving quarantine away from Auckland City and away from hotels. Plus, as new sexual violence legislation makes its way through Parliament, we ask how to strike the balance between protecting victims and protecting the principles of justice. And then, with a new tranche of MPs, we meet
1: some of the new kids on the block. I'm originally from a small town called Anaskill in Northern Ireland. Ah. And uh, I've been out here 25 years. So
2: I get home and I open that front door. I'm just mum. You know, I'm the mum, can you sign my permission slip? Mum, I need $2 for this trip.
0: We begin this morning with COVID-19 and the National Party wants to move MIQ out of hotels and out of central Auckland. The opposition is calling on the government to build a special quarantine facility near Auckland Airport, similar to one currently being considered by the Victorian government in Australia. National spokesperson for the COVID-19 response is Chris Bishop. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Good to be here. What are you proposing
3: and why? Well look, I think what we've found is over the last 12 months, the hotels that MIQ is used for at the moment they were a good short-term solution, you know. The government had to move really quickly. We had all these New Zealanders and other people coming back into the country, uh, sometimes with COVID. So they set up this hotel system. But as public health experts like Professor Baker uh, and you know Nick Wilson have noted, they're just inherently unsuitable for uh, you know for quarantine. And mm. you see that with the Pullman uh, inquiry that that's happened in the last few days. We've had all these cases out of the Pullman. We're now having to essentially retrofit the Pullman. We're installing a new uh, filtration system. We're installing new ventilation. We're changing the way the lifts work. So we're having to retrofit all these hotels. And they're in the middle of our CBD, right? So we're putting all of these potentially infected passengers uh, from overseas, sometimes with the new highly transmissible strain from the United Kingdom, right in the middle of the Auckland uh, central city. So what we think we should do is uh, build a purpose-built uh, quarantine facility, uh, managed isolation facility, outside Auckland uh, CBD, near the airport, uh, single storey. Uh, where people live in self-contained units. Uh, they'll be prefabricated. Uh, and this is exactly what the Victorian Government is doing for precisely the same reason, because, of course, Victoria's just uh, had cases come out of uh, hotel quarantine in mm. their uh, central city of Melbourne. Uh, and, of course, they've had a lockdown, just like we have. These went for longer, obviously. And so they're now talking about a purpose-built facility for exactly the same reason.
0: Now, now the, the facility that the Victorian Government is considering modelling theirs on mm. is Howard Springs in the Northern Territory. And I think we have some pictures, mm. just to give our viewers a bit of an idea of, of what you are proposing at this stage, how many people would this facility hold? How much would it
3: cost? Well, we we don't know on ter- in terms of how much it would cost, uh, but it would be expensive. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. But I think you have to compare it to the very high cost that um, hotel quarantine uh, costs the government anyway at the moment. You know, we're spending you know a considerable sum of money. Uh, you know, operating uh, all of these, these rooms around the country in Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch. Uh, and, of course, you've got to compare it to the cost of what lockdowns cost the economy. You know, tens of millions of dollars per day in Auckland when uh, there's a lockdown underway, for example. So, yep, it will be expensive. But, you know, we're going to have to have some sort of quarantine system for quite some time to come. Even with the vaccinations occurring around the world, uh, we're, we're going to have to operate an MIQ facility for many years to come. And uh, we just think it makes sense to build a purpose-built facility.
0: How long would it take?
3: Well, that, that is the, the great unknown. Uh, it, would, it would take some time. Uh, we, we suspect uh, some months. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we think it does make sense to do it. It's time to start the investigations. And, look, we, sh- we, we showed, I think, in the last year since COVID that when we want to move quickly as a country and as a government, you know, we can. I mean, people said, for example, uh, that we couldn't house the homeless. Uh, but actually, when in the response to COVID, when the lockdown happened, government moved really quickly and they got uh, people who are living rough on our streets into accommodation. So we can move quickly when we want to.
0: Have you talked to the hotels about the suggestion?
3: No, I haven't talked to the hotels about the suggestion. What would it mean for them? Well, look, I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, some of the hotels are moving away from MIQ. So uh, it's been reported publicly that uh, some hotels have already put... Uh, rooms available for the 1st of May. Some are,
0: but there are a lot, and and a lot of them are making a lot of money.
3: Yep, correct. Uh, So some some don't want to participate anymore. We'll we'll wait and see how that shakes out. They'll be in negotiations with the government because the contracts expire on the 30th of April. Second thing is, I think there still will be a role for hotels. And uh, you can have a purpose-built facility... Uh, and there may still be a role for some of the hotels in terms of lower-risk passengers. So, for example, once we get a bubble uh, up and running with the Cooks or Australia or other lower-risk destinations in time, it may be that you use hotels for, say, uh, three to seven days quarantine, Mm. and it may be that... There's a slightly higher risk in those hotels, uh, like the Pullman, for example, but that's acceptable when you're looking at where passengers come from. And we're also very keen on a a system where our response at the border is calibrated to the risk of the passengers. So if you come from the United Kingdom, for example, or the United States, you're clearly of a higher risk uh, to coming into New Zealand than someone coming from the Cooks, for example, or from uh, Australia. And, and our border response is very one-size-fits-all at the moment. Mm-hmm. It just says if you're coming from overseas, you present the same risk. And, of course, that's not Although true.
0: Although, of course, if you if you are found to have COVID-19, you are kept at the Jet Park facility, which is right next
3: to Auckland Airport at the moment. Yep, that's true. That's yeah. true. And uh, But, you know, we, we need greater capacity in the system as well. Uh, you know, there are thousands of New Zealanders wanting to come back uh, from overseas, and you know there wouldn't be an MP in the parliament who hasn't been contacted by desperate people overseas who, who they want to come back and they can't.
0: Would you offer financial support to hotels in lieu of continuing contracts?
3: Well, I think that's that's something to be to be worked through. That's that's a possibility. Um, you don't want to leave these guys in the lurch. I mean, they they have done a fantastic. Could
0: be very expensive.
3: Could potentially be very expensive, but you've got to compare it to the cost mm-hmm. of lockdowns. I mean, lockdowns cost New Zealand, you know, tens of millions of dollars just for every day and of course all the businesses out there, you know, many of whom have had an incredibly tough time over the last year or so. Uh, we've just simply got to avoid lockdowns and we've got to avoid the yo-yoing. I think that's what people really get upset about is potentially the, the prospect of yo-yoing in and out. Level three one day, level two the next, one but day But you would after.
0: accept this is an incredibly insidious virus, yeah. right? It's, it's, I mean, for, for all the preparations in the world it is very, very difficult to keep this thing out.
3: Absolutely, it is, and uh, you know that's why we think a, a purpose-built facility yeah. uh, makes sense. Um, and I think you know we've seen in MIQ over the last year, mm. uh, since since the virus came in, uh, 10 um, ex- uh, 10 incidents, border incidents through MIQ, and and this is Professor Baker and Wilson's mm. analysis of what's but, happened.
0: But, but also many many thousands of people passing through MIQ without incident. Yeah, y-
3: absolutely. Y- you, you've been in the you've been in this portfolio
0: or shadow portfolio for a few months now. As the opposition spokesperson for the response, from whom do you get your epidemiological advice?
3: So we uh, really try and take a public health advice. So, uh, you know, we've been talking to people like Professor Des Gorman, Uh, for example, from the University uh, of Auckland. And as much as possible, I've tried to ground what we've been saying and what the experts are saying. So reading uh, what Professor Baker and Wilson have been saying, what Professor Des Gorman's been saying. Uh, So we're very much taking a public health approach Mm. here. And, look, I've been open about the fact that the government's done a good job. You know, uh, since since COVID happened, the government has done a good job. But they can do better, and I see my role as supporting them to do a good job, but trying to make them do better. There
0: will be people noting that you are taking a very literal, constructive tone with us this morning. I just want to throw a quote to you from uh, your party leader earlier this week. Um, We were acutely aware of the economic and social damage a third lockdown could cause. Avoiding this very scenario at all costs should have been the government's top priority. Do you accept that your leader is insinuating that government failure led to this week's outbreak?
3: No, I think she's exactly on the same page as I am, which is we want to do as much as we possibly can to uh, avoid lockdowns, avoid the yo yoing uh, effect, obviously. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we had don't had know f-
0: what caused this, the, this outbreak. And she said avoiding this very scenario at all costs should have been the government's top
3: priority. Yeah, well, it, that's absolutely right. <laughs> Was it not it, the government's top priority? Well, I, I would say they've done a good job in the last year or so, Uh, but there have been undoubted failures Mm. in MIQ and at the border. There's there's simply no doubt about that. Now, it's true we don't know the source of the latest outbreak, but, uh, you know, we have been publicly on the record this week saying that the uh, laundry worker at the LSG Sky Chefs, which was the latest Mm. outbreak, uh, she should have been tested, and we were surprised that she wasn't tested on a regular basis. It was basically up to the company voluntarily to test her. And of course, she missed that test on February 1st.
0: You're taking expert advice in considering your policy positions. I know some experts have been calling for much wider spread mask use in New Zealand. Would mm. you consider making mask use mandatory in more circumstances?
3: Look, I think that's something we do need to be looking at. You know, it's funny if you look back at the history of mask, uh, mm. the, the advice on masks, it, it has really changed over time. So I what, mean, would
0: you, what would you change? Where, where would you increase mask use?
3: Well, look, I think um, public transport is the obvious one. So mandatory um, on public transport, say? So. Yeah, and I, th- you know, I think we're heading towards that situation now, to be honest. I see you know, Metlink and Greater Wellington mm. um, calling for that uh, this morning or last night. And it's like, I think we are heading towards that because it just makes sense. And I think over time, where we're going to get to in New Zealand is uh, mask use is just going to become a part of everyday life and that will be a change for people. But, mm. you know, COVID's forced us to adapt in all sorts of different ways.
0: Are you happy with the government's priority list for the vaccination programme?
3: Yeah, broadly happy with it. I think, you know, m- most people would say start with the border workers, you know, just fantastic to see them being uh, vaccinated yeah. yesterday for the first time. Uh, you know, start with the border workers, move on to more vulnerable uh, populations. Should,
0: should Māori be prioritised when it comes to the general
3: population? Well, I think um, in terms of that... They are statistically more vulnerable. Yeah, but I think you need to be working with Maori health providers and people who are on the ground who can reach those hard-to-reach groups. And Maori are more difficult to, to reach. That's mm. sort, of, sort of a, um, not a pejorative phrase, but, you know... The, this, no,
0: literally in, in, in areas such as Northland and the East Cape, for example. Yeah,
3: Northland, and the, yeah. the latest numbers I've seen from research shows that mm. they are statistically more likely to be a bit afraid or a bit um, cautious, I think would be a better phrase. Mm. Um cautious of the vaccine, that's statistically more likely.
0: So if we get to a point where the vaccine is offered to people over the age of 65, should we have a different age threshold for Māori in the general population?
3: I wouldn't like to see it like that. I'd like to see it just done on, I wouldn't like to see it done on essentially on a race um, basis. I think it should be done on a needs basis and it will, you know, probably transpire that Māori are in greater need and should be targeted that way.
0: Last question. Um, Should we be allowing in people from Australia without MIQ at this stage?
3: Not right now, but I do want to know what the timeline is for the Trans-Tasman bubble. You know, you've got the government saying two different things. You've got Stuart Nash out there saying nothing's going to happen until 2022. Um, basically saying... it's that for broad
0: tur- tourism. Yeah. That's for, that's for international, international tourists.
3: Yeah, but, you know, he, he was pretty harsh on the tourism operators, basically saying it's your fault for not pivoting and adjusting. Meanwhile, we've got uh, the, the PM and Mr Hipkins saying, uh, you know, we should have the Trans-Tasman bubble up and running by the end of March. I, but, I think but that's be clear, now unrealistic. You wouldn't let,
0: uh, someone's coming in from Sydney today, you put them in two weeks of MIQ, just to be clear.
3: I think we should be moving as expeditiously as possible yeah. to move to a situation where we do have that trans-Tasman bubble, uh, but you know, not literally tomorrow, but we should be moving as quickly as we can. Okay,
0: Chris Bishop, tēnā kui. Thank you very much for your time. We will bring in our panel shortly, but next, our vaccination program's underway, but will that be it? Or will we need ongoing jabs for years to come? A top Kiwi scientist with his concerns. Hoki mai i welcome back to Q&A. No country is safe until every country is safe. As vaccinations begin in Aotearoa, that is the stark warning from one of our leading scientific voices. Sir Peter Gluckman is the President-elect of the International Science Council and will join an oversight panel considering the different future scenarios in the fallout from COVID-19. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. You're a jack. I just want to start on the domestic front, and then we can consider the global picture. So, the first New Zealanders have been vaccinated against COVID nineteen. Just how significant is that milestone?
4: Well, I think it's a reflection of the remarkable progress that science has made over the last year to get to a vaccine which is safe and effective against the current um, variants that are, that are that are circulating. I mean, it's remarkable, and I think that New Zealand, along with a number of countries are now able to start its vaccination program. But until we get to a level where all New Zealanders, or at least a very large percentage of New Zealanders, and in fact all citizens in the world get very... Uh, a large level of vaccination. We're going to have ongoing issues with this virus.
0: Mm. Clearly, on the domestic front, uh, our border remains New Zealand's biggest vulnerability at the moment. What do you think of the idea of setting up a purpose-built quarantine facility?
4: Well, I think New Zealand's done fantastically. I mean, the, the big decision that was made to early shut our borders and go for elimination strategy has served us well. There's no doubt about that. At some point in the long... Fu- in, the, in the, uh, uh, ..unknown in the future, that will have to change. Mm. In the meantime, the issues of where we quarantine people, how we quarantine people and which people we quarantine is something that needs to be kept under review. I would personally like to see, like others have suggested, removing the highest-risk people from being in downtown Auckland. Mm. So... A, a purpose-built facility near Auckland Airport, the idea might have some merit, is that what Absolutely. you're Absolutely, and given that this will not be the last pandemic, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, the scientists have been saying for years that there'll be run current pandemics mm. of zoonotic origin. It is inevitable. Then having a standby facility is not unwise.
0: I want to pick up on something else you just said. You, you said, who we quarantine. Are you suggesting that we could be allowing people in without quarantine at the moment? Could we be operating
4: a trans-Tasman or Pacific bubble? The issues are fundamentally diplomatic rather than actually scientific. I mean, I think scientifically it is easy to get to a common standard between Australia and New Zealand about when to lock down, which bits to lock down. But it's actually a matter of sovereignty, sovereignty between the states in Australia and the federal government Mm. in Australia and between New Zealand and Australia to agree on some sort of common oversight mechanism and decision-making But c-
0: could, we not, could we not make our own standard, though,
4: and say, well, if there, there
0: hasn't been an outbreak of whatever level of significance for this long, well, we can let people in from those I think those it's states. a bit
4: more than that, because you'd... One, one, public confidence, and secondly, you need scientific confidence. Mm. So you need to have agreements on the standards around testing, etc., etc., et cetera, et cetera, to make it work smoothly rather than to go yo-yoing as, mm. as would otherwise happen, as we've seen in recent weeks, between Melbourne and Auckland.
0: Y- you are keeping a close eye on the global vaccine rollout. From what you know at the moment, are you confident in New Zealand's vaccine rollout processes?
4: Well, I'm confident that we are making a good assessments Around the world on the safety of vaccines. I'm confident that the vaccines we have are safe and are effective within reason. I mean, the AstraZeneca has some questions about the, the South African variant in terms of relative efficacy. But there are lots of vaccines coming down the pike. There are more vaccines to come. There are over 150 in development, more than 50 in clinical trial. We need to keep on top of it and I think New Zealand has good systems along with Australia and many other countries Mm -hmm. to evaluate these vaccines. They're safe. I think the biggest issue is going to be around vaccine hesitancy and misinformation and different groups in our society and in other societies being resistant to the vaccines for whatever reasons, philosophical, ideological or or fearful. Mm. And I think that we need to do a lot of work globally to make sure that we get to the point where the world can treat this virus as we would now treat influenza. It's gonna be inevitably endemic. Mm. It's inevitably gonna be at low levels in our society forever. Mm. And therefore, we need to think of ways of how we get the world to that point, because otherwise, New Zealand will have to keep a barrier around itself for a long time.
0: But at the moment, aren't nations acting in self-interest?
4: Absolutely. And that, I think, is the issue that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. We're seeing it now. There's still tensions between the United States, uh, Britain and and, and China over over actually understanding what happened in the early days of the pandemic. We're seeing that the... And Helen Clark's committee or panel is making some good points in its reports Mm. about the issues of the failure of the international system. And fundamentally, we do not have a global structure Mm. that can deal with a global threat.
0: But there are two issues, right? There are countries that may not be able to afford to get vaccines at this stage and to procure the vaccines despite the likes of the COVAX programme. And then there are countries that are resistant to the vaccine. I note that Tanzania's health minister said this week the country has no intention of of procuring the vaccine. Madagascar says it won't be vaccinating its population. So even if the global community is able to come together and provide sufficient vaccines for poorer countries, how do you get past that kind of resistance?
4: Well, there may be... There will always be niduses where, where, where it will be very difficult. And I think the issues which you're just pointing out in this question are we've got a, layer, a set of layers of uncertainties. Mm. You've got uncertainty how the virus will behave. You've got uncertainty how we will respond to the virus. We have uncertainties over the vaccine and the, whether they'll continue to cope with new variants. But you have enormous variance over behaviour, mm. over social responses political responses and diplomatic responses and that's why the scenario setting which we're doing uh, in conjunction with WHO and the United Nations Disaster Risk Reduction through the International Science Council is trying to map out what could happen mm. with all these uncertainties to try and encourage governments to make more coherent and more strategic decisions.
0: You say this is the best case scenario, this is the worst case scenario, do something about it but I imagine there will be some common threads throughout all of those different scenarios you are considering. What is the likelihood we're going to have to continue getting different COVID-19 vaccines?
4: Well, We, as, don't, as know, we, we don't know the answer to that. Some of the new vaccines that have been developed are very clever mm. scientifically, and they may deal with the, the, the COVID virus despite its variations. They may or may not. We just don't know. Uh, There's an optimism amongst the science community that can be done, but then it will take time. And then, as you point out, and others have pointed out, unless there's the funding to vaccinate, you know, six billion people, Mm. perhaps, uh, we're not going to really get on top of this virus at a global level. And so you'll end up with countries like New Zealand in the short term continuing with barriers at the border. The issue is I think we could expand those barriers by diplomatic considerations and getting combined sovereignty over some core decision-making. and But this will take time. I mean, even in New Zealand, with all the resources we have access to, it's going to be l- l- the end of this year before we have vaccine mm. coverage at the level to be, uh, to be protected and be very free, uh, much freer. But it'll be much harder in, the rest, in many other countries.
0: And so what is New Zealand's role in an international context in the short term? F- should, for example, everyone in Samoa, Fiji, Niue, Tokelau be vaccinated before I am vaccinated?
4: Probably, yes. I mean, I think if we think about it and don't think about it, it, it and under diplomatic, under sovereignty terms, mm. but under the need of the region, the need of the, of the planet, you would say the most at-risk populations actually, those in low-income countries which have, like New Zealand, Mm. no or very low virus exposure. They're the ones who are going to be particularly at risk if the virus gets in there. And so either you keep them in their bubbles for a long, long time, or you quickly immunize them. And they need to get out of their bubbles because their economies, I mean, uh, are are suffering far worse than ours Mm. is Mm. in this context. So if you think about it, there are really four classes of countries. Countries like New Zealand, high income, can afford to do things but have low virus load. Countries like Samoa, low income, no virus, low virus load. Countries like the United States and the European countries with high virus loads but high income. Countries like uh, uh, you know, many African countries with high virus loads mm-hmm. and low income. And at some point into the future, all of those are going to come to some sort mm-hmm. of equilibrium with each other before the world gets back to full, full, full normality. The issue is what decisions do the politicians make, what decisions do agencies make, what decisions do individuals make that allow us to get there quicker. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the vaccines are right at the heart of it, but politics is also right at the heart of it. Good luck for your work. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Peter Glackman, <laughs> tēnā Thank you for your
0: time. Thanks, Jack. A little later on Q&A, we will get our panel's thoughts on this week's Trans-Tasman diplomatic ding-dong. But next, new legislation that would change the way sexual violence trials are held in New Zealand. Supporters say it'll mean less trauma for victims, but opponents say it could convict innocent people. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. The Sexual Violence Legislation Bill will be back before Parliament this week. Supporters say its proposed changes will help to reduce the trauma of the justice process for victims of sexual violence. But opponents say two of the proposed changes in particular will fundamentally disadvantage defendants who, under New Zealand law, are supposed innocent until proven guilty. Green MP Jan Logie has been driving the bill and is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora. I just want to start by saying that I recognise this is an incredibly sensitive subject. And the purpose of this bill is to try and establish a balance, isn't it? A balance between not unnecessarily traumatising complainants and victims in the justice process, but also protecting those principles of justice and open justice. What is it specifically that makes the current justice process for sexual violence complainants Mm. so traumatic?
5: Well, it's been right. I think the first I'm aware of where the judiciary and other players in the justice system have come out and recognised that at the moment we don't really have justice for victims of sexual violence in our court process. And we've had a huge number of reports reiterating the fact that through the process of cross-examination, the reliance on myth and insinuation of consent that is at odds with our definition of consent, that people, complainants who have gone through that process have said that at the end of it, they've felt worse off than they did at the beginning. And that they, there was a very recent 2018, I think, report where parents said that um, they wish they'd never reported. If they'd known how traumatizing it would be for their family and their children, they wouldn't have reported. So
0: it's the cross examination that you think is the concern? It's at the
5: one of the aspects.
0: Okay, okay. It's not,
5: it's not all of it. And I do want to also put this in context where, as a country, the um, most recent research tells us that 24% of us have experienced sexual violence and only 6%. Percent of those people report to the police, and one of the reasons for that, acknowledged by the Law Commission in this in their research into this issue, is because the process is so traumatising. Okay,
0: let's talk about the process at the moment. So at the moment, sexual violence cases are held in a closed court. Sexual violence cases uh, have automatic name suppression for the complainant. Complainants give evidence if they choose to via CCTV. So they don't have to be in the same courtroom as a defendant in a case. Sexual violence courts have Priority status over other court processes at the not moment. Not
5: necessarily.
0: Well, they're, they're, they are they are We've fast tracked sexual through.
5: violence pilot courts. And those where, are prioritised. Where they, in some instances, have managed to prioritise, but that is not consistent across the country.
0: Okay, okay, but but, but there are there are but already have, some provisions. We have
5: small provisions um, to be able to reduce the impact of the process. But, but, but even those are, with those, those, just to just to just to me,
0: pick you up on those, though. Yeah. I mean, some th- those are unlike regular court processes that that you can give evidence via CCTV, you're not in the courtroom, automatic name suppression, no public gallery.
5: And actually the automatic name suppression is from a complainant's perspective, is not uncomplicated. Mm. We've heard um, concerns from complainants about that—a sense that it's infantilising them. They can choose they, to they
0: can choose to they can to challenge it, that. but yeah. the
5: process of doing that um, they often find infantilising okay. and difficult. But let's get back to the core of what you're asking. You're saying no, no, no. I want to ask about
0: the proposed changes. So, sorry, sorry. I just I know we're, we're on, on time, and I've got to get to okay. these two points that I know some in the legal fraternity have okay. umbrage with. Let's so, cut to it okay. so complainants under the law changes mm. could give evidence and be cross-examined by defence lawyers before a trial. Yep. How would that reduce the trauma of mm. the experience?
5: So the and I need to say that this we will not be the first country to do this. The UK does this at the moment. The, this was first in brought special in. circumstances. No, the defence lawyers have been misrepresenting this. So that in the UK it is for child witnesses and vulnerable witnesses, and the definition of vulnerable witness in the UK includes every victim okay. of sexual so, violence. So how
0: would it reduce so, the trauma?
5: This has been brought into other jurisdictions. They've tested that it doesn't have an impact on the right to a fair trial and found it does not. The benefits of it are that it reduces the time that the complainant has to hold the details of those incredibly traumatic mm. events. And when they're giving their evidence, mm. if they are um, triggered, re-traumatized, feeling that stress, and at the moment, in the court, the judge has to assess Will giving this person a break influence the jury's perception? OK. Leaning towards them, and there can be, at times we've heard, a reluctance to give them a break. OK. And they break down. In so, a pre-record, they can have that break. That can be edited out, and it will not influence the jury. So, so it's so the benefit of the defendant and okay, the so OK, so,
0: so, so if this law passes through, mm. someone gives evidence yep. about a traumatic experience well in advance of the trial, What happens if, when that evidence is played in the trial, the jury has a question for that person?
5: So, in the at the moment that
0: person's recalled to court. So
5: there is the, a recall provision within this legislation, and when overseas examples, which instead. is the great thing, is we get to call on overseas examples of having done this to test how big an issue that likely is. And so, the 2018 review of the experience in New South Wales found that this is an area of concern. That in over 200 cases, they had one recall. Okay, but it happens. So it I mean, may, I, well, you've, and, I've been to trials.
0: That happen, it happens. So, but there is a possibility that victims instead the, of going to court once, go twice. Let me ask you another so, side of okay,
5: it. Okay, no, I do just want to push back on this a little bit. But that, that's a possibility. There's a
0: provision of a that in the law. A possibility
5: that we are aware of, mm. and the overseas evidence says that the counsel organise their case better and that there are far less likely chances of interruption and they are able to request to be rescheduled okay. if they don't have their evidence.
0: So Section 23 of the Bill of Rights codifies a defendant's right to silence. Now, that, this applies to all criminal cases at right. the moment, right? So, so it means that the defence doesn't have to show any of its cards, it doesn't have to disclose any of its case until the prosecution has done so. Just let me finish. Yep. So if you are requiring a defence team to cross-examine someone months, maybe even a year before a trial, how are you not requiring the defence to sacrifice Mm. its right to silence?
5: So I'm coming back to two things here. So one, that argument played in 1999 and the Law Commission, when they considered these reforms, um, suggested that we should not have pre-record. And then they reconsidered, they heard the defence parties' concerns about this and they heard the other arguments and they looked to overseas evidence and they recommended that we make this change. The right to silence is fundamentally about the right not to incriminate yourself. That actually presenting a case and putting the case, what we but want in our courts is a testing of the evidence. Yeah, yeah. That is not a right to take the prosecution by surprise and rely on that to win well, a actually, case. The way,
0: the way our, our defence system is set up, the defence has every right to hold all of its cards and its case Close until the prosecution has presented its case. The reason for that is that things are often disclosed incredibly late throughout the trial process. Mm -hmm. If you are requiring a defence lawyer Mm -hmm. to cross-examine a complainant or a witness Mm -hmm. a year in advance of the trial, Mm -hmm. I don't understand how that doesn't show the prosecution exactly the kind of strategy that the defence intends to use.
5: And they get to respond appropriately to that and we are testing the evidence.
0: But they're giving that we up. We are
5: testing the evidence in our court which is the fundamental point of justice. And again, this has been done mm. overseas, tested, found not to undermine the right to a fair trial, has been considered by the Law Commission, has been given to Did everyone in the Law Rights
0: Commission agree? Vets.
5: We have had a Did clear in recommendation Did they, from the
0: law okay, commission. Okay, my point is that it's contentious, right? Like, well, it, it clearly it is it's It's
5: overseas experience as a country. Okay, again, we are no. so far behind uh, every single other jurisdiction. I know and that, at the I know moment, there are
0: leading barristers. We have a one
5: percent. Conviction
0: rate. Okay. Well, I the want you to hold that. A one percent conviction rate from where An epidemic
5: of sexual violence and a one percent conviction okay. rate. And I, I'm our provision
0: allow the judge that. to, I have to, to that.
5: disallow pre-record if they Jan, believe. Okay. Dan, I'm sorry. I have to. I have to. I have right to check that.
0: Now, so I've, t- I've looked at the Ministry of Justice report into the reported mm-hmm. victimisations of right. sexual violence. So a third of cases that were reported to police. That's right. Resulted in someone being criminally charged.
5: Thirty-one percent of those, I'm quite yeah, aware Yeah, thirty-one
0: percent. So of those, thirty-six resulted. Thirty-six percent resulted in a conviction. 9%. Just 9% of those defendants were found to be not guilty and 20% were. Okay. So when on. we
5: say so 1%, we're comparing against the crime and victim survey prevalence data which is where people describe mm. what they've experienced and it is assessed according to our law. Let me ask so you. So then we know that of those 6%, of those people a, a, report to the okay, police. Okay, but
0: that's a that's a survey. I, again, I know I, yeah. it is in everyone's interest for people who, who have been, who have been, who have been sexually assaulted. Absolutely. to that in that survey, it justice. is not
5: those people saying, I have okay. been sexually assaulted. It is describing a behaviour that matches our I definition. Have to, of I have to
0: ask you about the second major gripe that sure. many defence lawyers have, and, and that means that uh, the defence would have to apply for permission to run evidence mm-hmm. and question a complainant about their previous sexual history with a defendant. Yeah. Why do we need that change?
5: So this is will, again, just bring us into line with the UK, Australia and Canada. They have this. And we're not disallowing any of that evidence. We are requiring that there is a relevance threshold. But, but, but It's bringing it into so line. So what's the with relevance
0: threshold the at the relevance. moment for all evidence in all trials? So All evidence has to be relevant. At
5: the moment, let me say, so Professor Elizabeth MacDonald's very recently done research around um, and using audio tapes of what's happening but, in our courts and she found evidence of quite regularly, so an example of a am sorry complainant I'm running out of time so I just need a a to Once before. No, okay. It's used as definition or evidence for consent.
2: Okay.
0: I as question you know,
5: that.
0: Okay. Okay, but if if for example there there is a sexual assault trial mm-hmm. in which the act of of sex is not denied by either party mm-hmm. but the issue of consent is central, surely that is relevant the 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 relationship a... history between the complainant oh, yeah. and the defendant yeah. is relevant but at the moment under our current legal threshold yeah. all evidence Presented by both the prosecution and defence has to be
5: relevant. This no, is essential. <laughs> this this I, a mean, I would argue that at the moment, our um, Evidence Act's mm. um, relevance is out of step with our criminal, that at the moment, consent in our law cannot be assumed, given in general, or for the future. But the way it is being argued in the court and the evidence that's being introduced is exactly at odds with the criminal definition. Of consent, and the other critical point but is that's here, To that point, so evidence what we're mirroring, yes, and this is what we're ensuring. So that at defence but, but at the defence will have to apply yeah. to prove that the evidence is relevant before it's admitted in the UK, where this happens at the moment. So the twenty-five percent, I think, of cases. Mm. The defense applied for that evidence to be introduced and in eighty-seven percent of those times the judge said, Okay, yes, this is relevant. I know and I and allowed just, it to be introduced. So to we're not getting rid of it. But, the, but it has to be when we hang know, on, hang on a second.
0: I know because we're just we're almost out of time. <laughs> yeah. No, I know we could it's, go all day. <laughs> but it was just it's a really interesting subject and a complex subject. And is. I'm glad that we can we can give it this this time and attention. I know that many of the defence lawyers who oppose your legislation and there are some significant names there. The Criminal Bar Association, which includes prosecutors, the New Zealand Bar Association, the Defence Lawyers Association, the Criminal Committee of the Auckland District Law Society. They 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 have some issues with the international examples that you quote as part of this. I'm just acknowledging that. I know we have to move on.
5: But I'd also say the, that, that some of the examples of their responses to that have been wrong.
2: OK. okay. <laughs> Just. Uh,
5: yeah. And we do need to say that of the 81 submissions, 10 opposed.
0: I mean, but we shouldn't... OK, and so how many how so many submissions those, were opposed to, to, to um, assisted dying?
5: And I mean, also that's to no say that, that things, the Law right? Commission considered all of those okay. perspectives and overseas evidence, and they recommended this. We I have a really strong evidence base. To be honest, in my history in Parliament, I've never seen a piece of legislation mm. with such... A strong, evidence-based, those concerns it... about the right to a fair trial, the judge holds that role in the court to ensure it, and we have built that in. Every part of the legislation to maintain that job of them in the court. We have not taken it away at all.
0: Alright, we will follow it this week in the courts, no doubt. Yeah. Jen, Logie, thank you very much thank for your you. time. After the break, our panellists with their thoughts on National's new quarantine concept, plus who's that? Huh? Our reporter meets some of the new faces in New Zealand's parliament.
1: Now, I understand that the New Zealand government has has, uh, some issues with that.
2: If the shoe were on the other foot, we would take responsibility. That would be the right thing to do. And I ask of Australia that they do the
4: same.
0: That was Scott Morrison and Jacinda Ardern trading blows over the status of a New Zealand-born Australian-raised woman who allegedly supported ISIS in Syria. Time for our panel now. Fran O'Sullivan is the head of business for NZME and joining her is Auckland councillor and Labour Party member Efeso Collins. Kia ora kōrua. Fran, was that real outrage or was that theatre?
6: Oh, look, Jacinda knows she's playing to the crowd locally in New Zealand, but it's starting to get a little bit worn. I mean, we saw last year, um, obviously in Australia, coming out of... a out of a meeting with Scott Morrison, which was actually focused on this upcoming pandemic, and she used that opportunity to savage him then over the deportation of, you know, Australian-raised criminals, if you like, back to New Zealand. Um, Australia's not for turning, so I think, you know, to me it seems, what are we doing about this in the sense of are we talking to New Zealanders in Australia, warning them, having a campaign there, that actually you'll get turfed out. Uh, if Australia, um, you know, decides you're Mm. unwanted, whether even if you've joined, uh, it doesn't have to be a crime, but if you're involved in, you know, undesirable by Australian standards um, activities, uh, you could be sent back here. And I think it's time to actually realise, this has been in place since 2014, and to realise that Australia is taking a very, very sort of, you know, I guess, assertive and strong positioning itself. And Mm. it's got a story to tell to its own people too.
0: Uh, This is the thing I wonder. I I wonder if both prime ministers, when they make these forceful comments, whether it's regarding the 501s policy or Mm -hmm. regarding uh, this uh, situation with the woman in the Middle East if they are both just playing to domestic audiences the whole time, and if actually behind closed doors the relationship isn't as fraught as it might appear from those pictures, if you saw.
7: Yeah, I agree, and I think they're both talking to their own constituencies, really. Look, everyone's suffering from the COVID-19 pandemic at the moment, so they're trying to make out that Mm. uh, we're still showing leadership, but you would argue that it was good. I thought she had some really fighting words to say. I thought congratulations on the Prime Minister, but again, she's talking to a predominantly New Zealand audience, but we feel a lot of that you <laughs> Uh, social incohesion when the 501s are deported back. And mm. Look, I, th- I think Anjum uh, made, Raman made mm. a really good point about it. at some stage we've got to think a lot more globally about who we're taking in, what we're going to do, where these children will end up. Uh, the Australians have made their position very clear. I think we can show a level of compassion and maybe they need to get the MFAT people working harder in the background. See, it's interesting you m- say this. this.
0: Yeah. I, see, I, I'm always drawn to hypocrisy and, and perhaps some will consider this to be a Double standard. But I, I note our approach to Mark John Taylor last year, the New Zealand man mm. o- of questionable mental capacity, who was in the Middle East and went there to fight with ISIS, mm. whom we dropped. Yep. Right, like yeah. a hot potato. We said, No, we don't want yeah. this guy back. We're not going to make any diplomatic efforts to get him back, even though the Kurds had been holding him were asking us yeah. to do well, so.
6: Well, but this is, this comes down to surely an education effort to younger people to say, If you are going to go off and do these, um, you know, escapades and join up with ISIS and all mm. the rest, don't necessarily expect um, your statehood to be recognised back here. And I think, you know, you've got to send a message out there. Otherwise, the romance of, of going and joining up. Uh, on a crusade, if you like, switching Switching things yeah. a bit there. <laughs> not so much yeah. a crusade. But, um, you know, that young people are sometimes, um, you know, they're emboldened by this. Mm. And I think you've got to make it clear that actually, no, um, it's not OK. The other thing, if we're talking about, um, you know, relative hypocrisy, is that New Zealand, of course, does deport people too. And we mm. deport mm-hmm. um, yeah. people who have committed crimes here back to the Pacific Islands, mm. you know, Tonga and other places. And we've been quite strong on that ourselves. Now, you don't hear too much pushback mm. on that. No. So situational. Australia is stronger than um, our stance with um, the islands. But however, we do have that. Yeah.
0: What did you think of the significance of this week's lockdown, friend
6: Well, I thought the lockdown um, should have been lifted by now, uh, to be honest. And, um, and I think what is significant to me today is that... Uh, people uh, can fly to Sydney again out of, um, out, out of New Zealand and not be locked down then unless they've been in Auckland in the last 14 days. And, um, and if so, they have to have a, um, a COVID test coming up um, negative you know, yeah, uh, within in the last hours. 72 hours. Yeah. So Australia has actually been much more kind to us going one way than we are <laughs> even bringing our own people back the other mm. way because if you come back, you've still got to be locked down. Uh, you know, so sort of go into quarantine rather um, here. So these are the kind of topics that should be on the agenda for the two prime ministers when mm. they meet mm. uh, next um, uh, next month, mm. uh, assuming they meet, um, because um, you know, it's the question: Do we actually lock down Scott Morrison if he comes <laughs> over here? Because it's due <laughs> to happen here. But, yeah. You know, yeah. I, and I mean, there's all sorts of stuff around that, but I, I think. Uh, the significance of the lockdown, it was short and sharp, but I don't think it needed to go uh, for the time that it did, mm. you know, in, in stage two, if
0: right, you like. Right, right. Mm. Uh, what did you make of the lockdown this week? Obviously, it centred uh, in an area with your constituents.
7: Yeah, look, South Auckland has come out really well at this time. The last time when we went into lockdown in August, there was all sorts of vitriol all over social media uh, thrown at South Auckland. What we've seen from this family, the Fano, the, the students and staff at Papatoetoe High School, is real maturity, a desire to say, this is what it looks like to be part of the team of five million. There are challenges we have in the community because people obviously will worry. There's panic buying that kicks in. It's not our family's doing the panic buying. We're wondering how we're going to get baby formula. So I think South Auckland has done really well. And I think it's important for all of us to look and say, this is what the team of five million looks like. These Mm. people are leading by example. So I I, uh, completely applaud their efforts.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? From what we know about the family at the centre of this Mm. this week, I mean, they they identified symptoms. They immediately put themselves Mm. in isolation. They did everything... Right. And on a couple of occasions now, I'm thinking back to previous occasions where people have tested negative for COVID and have left MIQ and have been scanning mm-hmm. you know, diligently at every, at every premises they enter only to then test positive. We have been saved by responsible actions from citizens.
6: Yeah. yeah, and I think we have. and um, But it's sort of how do we go to that next phase now? Mm. I mean, as Peter Gluckman uh, was talking earlier, we're going into an era uh, where uh, he's saying that this virus is going to be endemic, uh, there's mm. going to be other pandemics and all the rest. And, you know, how do we sort of, as we all get vaccinated, how do we then actually open up to the world again? And if I could just draw on uh, the comments made by um, Chris earlier, Chris uh, Bishop, Bishop yeah. when he talked about um, putting in place, uh, in the, you know, a separate MRQ facility, I mean, why wouldn't you? Why would you put that next to Auckland, which is a major population, a major centre of, um, you know, the economy? Uh, that actually carries some risks. Um, you would really, in some ways, want to keep the beating heart of the economy separate from all of that. But why wouldn't you put it like somewhere like Ohakia, as people like Michael Baker have advocated? Almost going back a year now, I mm. have to say. Um, which is the absurdity of it all. But even, even the demand and proposals coming from private sector to mm-hmm. fund some, so you could then bring back your um, students, you know, the export yep. education people, put them in a facility, quarantine them get, them, get them back into the community. So I think you've got to look at stepping up the economic dividend now and coming out of it and not being the hermit kingdom forever.
0: Do you support a purpose-built quarantine facility?
7: Yeah, I don't know. I probably support building houses a lot faster uh, than than a a purpose-built MRQ facility. They tried that. Look, I think part of our challenge as well as New Zealand is that we've because of COVID-19 we've been locked down a bit. There's not a lot of travel in and out and people are very aware of what we're Mm. doing. If we lift our eyes slightly we'll acknowledge that of uh, a World Health Organisation said of the 12 billion doses of COVID, uh, of coronavirus, the vaccine that will be produced, 9 billion has already been purchased by wealthy Countries, the UK, Mm. the US, Canada, are all in there. There's panic buying going on amongst Mm. the wealthy countries. That will impact on the inability for poorer countries to get vaccinated. And there's some reports saying that that's not going to be till 2024. We've got to look globally at what our responsibility is in ensuring that everyone's needs are going to be met. And I think that's part of our global challenge and global commitment to a community, especially those poorer Mm. countries.
0: Fran, we knew it was a possibility, but how was this week's lockdown relatively short and sharp? um, How how did that affect business confidence, especially Mm. in Auckland?
6: Well, it did affect business confidence, but um, I think, you know, sort of at the big end of town, people are used to this. They've mm. they've got in place um, contingencies. Um, companies know how to go into lockdown, take everyone home. People yeah. have got their gear at home. Mm. Uh, where it really affects is the smaller retail mm. uh, end of things, particularly the cafes. Walk around Auckland, you, you see... Even Even before this, um, a lot of the little coffee bars only doing yeah, yeah. a fraction of the trade they were previously now these are on a knife edge. Um, I do have to congratulate, and i 'll come back to this point later, but the government for kicking in some uh, financial mm. support mm. Um, they were quick on that. they played around with the the rules of it, talking about mm. the seven days and but anyway there 's a bit of a bit of a money in, in in the kitty there, and I think that has worked well, but we do need to think about. Is this sensible? Like I was down by chance in Wellington when this happened. Mm. I walked around in Wellington. It was level two. I've been a paranoid Aucklander type. had on, had on yeah. my mask, and I did everything I had. I got my, got my, you know, hand sanitizer in my bag. I've got my gloves. Got all that You're a everywhere I went. Brand. I looked yeah. look like a complete no, freak because yeah. nobody else was doing that. I yeah. mean, and you go further south. Mm. Um, Why is parts of the South Island uh, in level two? So I think, you know, if you're going to have the major source of infection because that's where MIQ has been, Auckland, doesn't it make sense to take that away?
0: Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it as always, guys. The Collins and Fran O'Sullivan. After the break, a new MP who's just finished up a high-flying banking career.
8: So why did you? I mean, I not mean to be rude, but I mean you must have earned pretty good coin in that. Why do you want to? Why did you want to be an MP?
0: Kia ora Koto, welcome back to Q and A. How many faces among the new MPs could you put a name to? Well, there are forty. And they are your representatives. So throughout this year on Q&A, we're going to give you a quick snapshot to introduce you to some of them. This week, reporter Fena Owen meets newbies Damien Smith and Barbara
1: Edmonds. Hi.
8: Hi, Damien, how are you?
1: Good, I'm very good. Originally I was at number 11 on the list, and then number 10, and I was always supremely confident that I'd get in. Um, we've got offices for the MPs and the support staff. Um, and
8: that's David Seymour, the leader's office over there. Well,
1: David's, there? Actually op- David's a man of the people, so he's oh. op- open plan. He's oh. sitting there um, and uh, he sacrificed the bubbles of offices to uh, to be there. He's so going to so he get, get
8: sick of that, he he though. He sits yeah, there. Yeah.
1: Uh, I did some research
8: on that. With, um, you work for Virgin. Yeah, conglomerate. And I work for,
1: um, but then that was my first career in sales and marketing and then I worked in the banking industry for Macquarie Bank and the ASB Bank.
8: Did you meet Richard Branson when you worked for Virgin? Yeah, I did. Yeah. You did?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Richard's a good guy.
8: Yeah. Oh, first name basis.
1: Well, you know <laughs> I
8: don't mean to be rude, but I mean you must have earned pretty good coin in that. Why do you want to why did you want to be an MP? Well I always you wanted to, to
1: serve, yeah. And my daughter's seventeen now, so it was a good time in my life to do that. Um, and also, um, banking and finance experience is pretty relevant to the portfolio that I have here. Now, I'm originally from a small town called Inneska in Northern Ireland, ah. and uh, I've been out here 25 years. Though
8: you must have lived um, through some of the troubles yes, over yeah. there. Yeah. 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 How do you think that has that affected you know your approach to life in any way?
1: Yes, it has. In the sense that you realise that. Freedom and prosperity is uh, it's, it's, it's something you have to fight for and uh, it was a terrible time there with furious tragedies that happened. We were bombed out of our house um, you basically get sort of half an hour's notice and uh, from the police and you've got to evacuate well. Wow.
8: Oh, there's your leader. And he's on the phone. Yeah. So you've lived through the, that Irish situation, that boom and bust. So can you see parallels here? Or are yes you being I
1: dramatic? No, I'm not being dramatic. I can see parallels here. You know, there's, that's my concern about New Zealand is that we end up in a similar situation where we get asset prices that are inflated with housing. And one day the piper has to be paid.
2: Hi. Hi. Thanks for seeing us. Thank you for coming. Um, Thomas. Hi Thomas.
8: Thomas, Hi. So when you got in late last year, it was like nothing very new because you you worked here in
2: Parliament, haven't you? I have worked here in Parliament. Um, The previous job I had was sort of an advisory role, behind the scenes helping with like tax policy, economic policy, um, firearms policy. So who's this handsome guy? (laughs) He is the love of my life, he's my husband Chris. Um, He's also a house husband or a home daddy. He's been a house husband for 12 years and that's because we've got eight kids. Harmony is eight, Yazal is nine, Um, Sammy is 10, Prayer is 11, Patience is 12, almost turning 13. Um, Agape's 14, Arcade's 15 and Acacia's 16. My family day is Saturday and that's because I'm running around taking them to, you know, normally we have 10 games in a weekend, 10 10, ten games. sports games, yes. Yeah. He's amazing, my dad. Solo dad brought up um, four kids because my mum, Balepa, she passed away when I was four. When you were just four? Yeah, four. Yeah. So, and then we Buried her on my fifth birthday. So they came over from Samoa. They came For over a from New Life. Li- yeah, New Life, 1976, you know. Um, and then, um, but this beautiful woman here is my stepmum, or I call her my mum, uh, Rachel or Ursula. She was actually um, brought over from the islands to help look after us kids. Yeah, My absolute goal is to be a good constituent MP. I know that sounds um, probably weird coming in these days, but it's like I get so much joy out of being able to help the people that come through our door. If they can't come through our door, then we go out to them. So um, that's my key focus this term. And for me, it's just, you know, wherever the boss puts us, that's where we go and that's where we serve. During the day, you know, you can be in the house, you can be in the electorate meeting constituents. But, you know, as soon as I get home and I open that front door, I'm just mum. You know, I'm the mum, can you sign my permission slip? Mum, I need $2 for this trip. And mum, this one's pulling my hair. Can you tell them off, you know?
0: Whena <laughs> Owen with those first-term faces. Kua mutu. That's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and nga Mahiki koutou i nga karere. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Mārai is next. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.